Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. There's a guy who is going to, who has been going to expensive restaurants and ordering meals that he can't afford. And then as he gets to the end of his meal, as they start to bring out the check, he fakes a massive heart attack. Have you heard about this guy? And uh, I think he's gotten like 50 free meals out of it. And then the final time that it kind of happened, uh, he was faking a massive heart attack and the police came in. And while he's faking the massive heart attack, they show him a video of him faking a massive heart attack at a different restaurant. But there are a lot of con men out there, and I'm curious if you have ever been conned. Uh, I know in seminary, we were conned into this business proposition that was a promise to not be a pyramid scheme, was more like an upside-down funnel, which is a pyramid scheme, right? And we, uh, because of that, lost some money and some relationships and things like that. Uh, there's there's a con that, that keeps going through the church, at least in Green Bay, I'm sure it's throughout the United States, where someone will email a member of the church and they will say, hey, this is Pastor Dan and uh, I need some gift cards, uh, but please don't tell anyone it's a surprise for a family in need or for some staff. If you could go buy those and then send them to me electronically, I would appreciate that. And so there are people in our church who've been conned out of hundreds, if not thousands of dollars because of that. Uh, there are con men everywhere, and even as I think about my, my voicemail, I'll have, I think this past week I had 11 voice messages, and 10 of them um, were telemarketers, and I think half of those were probably con artists trying to get something out of me. And I think all of us have been conned at one point in time, whether you remember or not, but when you are conned, you feel, you feel dumb, right? You feel embarrassed. You think, how could I not know better than that? But here's the thing, con artists are good at what they do. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in business anymore, right? They're very good at deceiving people. In today's passage, we encounter some con artists that are very, very good at what they do. And as a result of it, it brings some hurt to Israel. Uh, they, I'm sure they feel a bit dumb, a bit foolish about falling for this con. But in the end, what we see is that the con is not the end of the story. And so if you would, please open up to Joshua chapter 9. Uh, it's page 184. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a red one in the seat in front of you. If there isn't, there are some in the back. Uh, but you will need a Bible today. And so if you could keep it open for the entire sermon, we'll keep going back to that. Um, but if you're just joining us, God is in the process of fulfilling his, his plan to Israel uh, to give them the promised land. He brought them out of Egypt uh, he gave them victory over Sihon and Og, east of the Jordan River. And then more, more recently, as we've seen, God has brought them into the promised land, and he's given them victory over Jericho and over the city of Ai. Uh, this news has made it throughout the land of Canaan, 
And the people who have heard of what the Lord has done to Jericho and to Ai are terrified, as they should be. And they are trying to figure out how they are going to respond to this threat of Israel. As we dive into chapter 9, we're going to be immediately introduced to six people groups. And so I have a map up here uh, to kind of show you these different people groups. And so, uh, again, this is east of the Jordan. This is the promised land. Uh, Israel comes across, and they are, uh, they are stationed at Gilgal. They take Jericho, which is about here, and Ai, which is around here. And in this chapter, it's going to start by mentioning the Hittites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, and then just down by the water, there are the mosquito bites right there. So that's a seminary dad joke if you didn't get it. But yeah, the, but, but these are the people groups. So Israel is right here, and it's going to be talking about all of these people groups right in here, and especially the city of Gibeon, which we'll talk about, which is right in this area. So let's look together, Joshua chapter 9, and we'll look at verses 1 through 6. This is God's word. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan, in the hill country and in the lowlands, all along the coast of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, Israel's victories, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn out patches, patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him, And to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country. So now make a covenant with us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book of Joshua and how it has been so instructive to us on what it means to be strong and courageous in the world we live in, what it means that you are with us wherever we go. And so God, pray now that as we study this really interesting, interesting account in Joshua 9, that you would, that you would minister to us once again. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So the nations, the, the people groups in the promised land have agreed to unite together as one man to fight against Israel. They've all agreed to do this except for the inhabitants of Gibeon. And so if we go to this next map, you'll see a little bit more here. Again, here's Gilgal, where Israel's encamped, Jericho and Ai, uh, where, where Israel just had a great victory. And then you will see the very next city along this path is Gibeon. And they'll also kind of throw these other three cities in there as well as we walk in on the chapter. Uh, but it's, you see it's only about 10 miles from Ai. And these people of Gibeon, instead of gathering together with the other people groups, the other nations in that area, instead of gathering together with them to fight against Israel, what they decide to do is to try to trick the Israelites. Verse 4 says they are cunning, or they acted cunningly. This is 
The same word used in Genesis chapter three to describe Satan himself, that he acted cunningly, that he is a deceiver, that he is crafty and shrewd. The Gibeonites were terrified of Israel. And instead of repenting and, and surrendering to the Lord God, instead of fleeing out of the promised land, instead of joining forces with the other people in the land to fight against them, they decide to try to trick Israel into a covenant of peace. Now we need a little bit of backstory to this. God, God clearly makes commands about how Israel shall engage with the people in the promised land, in the promised land specifically. We read about this in Deuteronomy chapter seven under the leadership of Moses. And this is what it says. It says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. That's if they don't flee or vacate the land or turn to the Lord. You shall make no covenant with them. That's the important part. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, which is also a covenant. It's a personal covenant. Giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Now, why is this? Why does God not want them to create a covenant with the people in the land of Canaan? Here it is. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces the pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people wholly set apart to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And so God says, listen, go in, destroy the people, destroy their altars, because if you don't, you will end up worshiping their gods. Now we may read that and think, no, they won't. They won't chase after those other gods. But as we read the rest of the Old Testament, we see that God's concerns are warranted. Half of the Old Testament is written because Israel disobeys the commands that are written right here in this Deuteronomy 7 passage. If you keep reading in the Old Testament, Israel does intermarry with people of, of various religions. And because of that, they end up worshiping their gods and build altars to their God. They end up forsaking the Lord God who loves them and who saved them and who is a true and real God. And then after hundreds of years of warning the people of Israel to repent and return to the Lord, God's anger comes against Israel and sends them into exile in order to recapture their hearts. So many times before the time of Joshua, God as a wise and loving father makes it crystal clear that when they go into the promised land, they must not make a covenant with idol worshipers, both nationally and personally in marriage because the Lord is a jealous God, a husband who loves his bride, his people, and he does not want to share them with another. Now, the Gibeonites' plan was clever and it was deceptive. 
Uh, you know, they went into their closet and they grabbed their old shoes, their old clothes that are tattered and torn, and they put them on and they grabbed some old wineskins and stitched them back together and grabbed some old stale bread. And they came to Joshua at Gilgal and they said, we are from a far, 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 far away place. And we want to make a covenant of peace with you. And as we will see in this interaction, there is a massive failure of leadership in Israel. So let's continue in verse 6. It says, And they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps, perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? What we see here is that the leadership of Israel, but also the Gibeonites, are very aware of God's commands. You see, Israel was required to offer a covenant of peace to any people group outside the land of Canaan. That's why they say they're from far away. But inside the land of Canaan, they're called to drive them out or to destroy them, that this place, this territory would be holy, that would be devoted completely to the Lord. And so... The leaders of Israel here, knowing the commands of God, are a bit suspicious, saying, what if you're really from this land and you're just trying to trick us? And here's the response, verse 8. They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you? And where did you come from? They said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come. Because of the name of the Lord, your God right? We're not from the promised land. We pinky swear. We're not from here. For we have heard a report of him, the Lord, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and the king of Hesperon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. Notice here, notice here that the men uh, are very clever, they do not mention Israel's most recent victories over Jericho and Ai, uh, because where Gilgal is, if you remember from the map, it is east of those countries, and these men reportedly came from a faraway country, and so they came through, and they heard about Sihon, they heard about Og, but they would not have yet heard about Jericho and Ai, and so they come, and they report the victories of the Lord over Sihon and Og, but also over Egypt as well. They continue, verse 11. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. This is the second time they're asking for a covenant. It says, here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now behold, it is dry. And crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them. And behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from a very long journey. Now, verses 4 and 15 are kind of the, the pinnacle, the turning point in the chapter. They should jump off the page to us. Verse 14. So the men took some of their provisions, probably to inspect them, but did not did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them 
and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation, the leaders of Israel, swore to them. You know, it's interesting. In the Old Testament, there was an infallible way of seeking direction from the Lord. It's actually communicated in Numbers chapter 27 in the commissioning of Joshua, that whenever Joshua has a big decision, whether to go out to war or not to go out to war, he's supposed to go to this priest named Eleazar. And Eleazar would inquire of the Lord with him with two stones, Urim and Thummim. And through that inquiry, the Lord would give an infallible answer back to Joshua. Evidently, Joshua and the leaders of Israel did not go to Eleazar. They didn't pause to consult the Lord on whether or not they should enter into this covenant. Now, here's the thing. A covenant is a really, really big deal. Israel was not trying to choose what shirt to wear that day. They are making a lifelong covenant that is binding. It is a huge commitment. You know, I've I've never seen the show, but the title has always intrigued me. Uh, The name of the show is Married at First Sight. Uh, The name of the show just kind of tells you what it's all about, doesn't it? But in this show, I guess there's three to five couples that are paired up by relationship, quote, experts, okay? And on the show, the couple agrees to marry at first sight. Uh, After spending their wedding night there in a hotel, they then go home for eight weeks. And at the end of eight weeks, there is this decision day. And at this decision day, they decide whether they want to stay married or whether they want to get divorced. They've completed 16 seasons of this, and there were 64 couples. 58% of them chose to stay married on decision day, which isn't bad. But of those 58%, two-thirds of them later decided to get a divorce making the overall success rate of these marriages at first sight by experts 17%, which is well below the success rate of 50 to 60% in America as a whole. To get married at first sight may make a good reality TV show because it is just a train wreck waiting to happen, but it is a horrible way to enter into a lifelong covenant of marriage. If these people saw marriage as a binding lifelong covenant, then I'm guessing no one in their right mind would go on this show. I'm not sure they're in their right mind anyways, but you get the point. This is what Israel is doing. Israel is marrying themselves to another people at first sight without consulting the Lord. This is a massive failure in leadership. And out of arrogance, probably self-reliance, out of the sake of expediency, they don't go to God. Christian, you probably didn't need to pray about what outfit you would wear to church today. Maybe you did. Maybe some of you should have, right? But most likely you didn't pray about the outfit you wore today. But when you are making major life decisions, don't be arrogant, don't be hasty, don't submit to the idol of expediency. Go to the Lord. So I'm curious, what major life decisions do you have before you? Maybe you're thinking about getting married. Go to the Lord. Maybe you're thinking about dating someone. Go to the Lord. Maybe you're thinking about purchasing a car or a boat. 
or moving. Maybe there's a job offer or, or you need to take out a loan or think you need to take out a loan or you're picking out a school or figuring out where God is calling you to minister. Go to the Lord. Those are major life decisions. These are not all covenants or binding contracts, but a lot of them are. Proverbs 3 says this. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not... Do not lean on your own understanding. That's what Israel did. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Now, how do we do this practically? How do we go to the Lord for guidance on major life decisions? We do not have an Eleazar priest that can give us an infallible answer. So how do we go to the Lord and seek his direction? Well, the Lord has provided other means for us in the church today. There are three that I will just highlight very quickly. First, God has given us the infallible word of God. God will never call you to do something that is contrary to his word. We're gonna talk a lot about this today, but God will not call you as a Christian to marry a non-Christian. And so you don't need to even pray about it, to be honest with you, because God has clearly told you his command and his direction. A second way, not only through scripture, but is also through prayer. Uh, while we may not have the high priest Eliezer, we have a greater high priest, Jesus, who has given us his spirit that we can go to God and to seek God and to know from God what direction we're called to do when we're choosing between two biblically viable options, okay? Now, if you're like me, the problem with that is a lot of times my desires are shouting while the Holy Spirit is whispering. And so God has given us a third thing, which is his church, the people of God. Proverbs 12 says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. I've experienced that. But a wise man listens to advice. When we have major life decisions, we should not only go to the scriptures, we should not only pray, but we should also go to the people that God has provided for us in his church, to godly men and women, and ask for their honest advice. To go to parents, which I know is hard for kids, to spiritual friends, spiritual mentors, and see if there is a consistent feedback in making this major life decision. And so here is Israel's failure and our failure. We think we are wise in our own eyes. We think we have it all figured out. And for the sake of expediency, we make major decisions without ever consulting the Lord, either through his word or through prayer or through his people. That is the failure of Israel's leadership. But by God's grace, failure is not the end of the story. There is opportunity for Israel to be faithful even after the failure. Look at verse 16 with me again. It says, at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. Three days, that's all it took. Three days. This shows how hasty the leaders of Israel were. They just waited three days. They would have figured this out. Okay? Verse 17. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now the cities were Gibeon, Chephirah, Bereth, and Kiriath Jerim. So again, we have a map up here, and you can see we put this up here. Here's Gibeon, and you see there's question marks next to these because they're not really sure. And here's Kiriath Jerim, but it's all kind of this area Maybe they're all kind of under Gibeon. Uh, as we find out later, it's a, it's a pretty major city. So verse 17 continues, uh, sorry, verse 18. It says, but the people of Israel did not attack them 
because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. The people of Israel were understandably upset. Their leaders, again, have failed them. Their spiritual leaders did not even go before the Lord before they married this other people into them. Now the question is, how are the leaders going to respond at this moment, after the failure? How are they going to respond? How are they going to make things right? You know, at this point, we might expect the leaders of Israel to say, you know what? This covenant was made under false terms. They were lying to us. And so, you know, we don't need to honor this covenant. We can go in and take these people out. But let's see what happens instead. Verse 19. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. You know, honoring their covenant was not popular amongst the people of God, but it was the right thing to do. It was the faithful thing to do. Like I said earlier, covenant is a very big deal. As many of you know, in the Old Testament, to make a covenant, it was an entire ceremony in which they would take animals and they would cut these animals in half and they would set them on separate sides and then the two parties would walk through the animals. And it was a way of saying, listen, if either of us breaks the covenant that we have just made, may what happened to the animals happen to us. May we be cut in half. May we be put to death. And so here in this passage, Israel's leaders acted faithfully after their failure. They knew they messed up, they knew they did wrong, but they want to honor their covenant commitment because they know two wrongs don't make a right. And if you notice the reason for honoring their commitment is because they had sworn by the Lord God, but also because they feared the wrath of God, the misery of God, if they break their covenant. And in fact, again, we find out that this is a legitimate fear. You can read all about this in 2 Samuel 21, but in 2 Samuel 21, we read about how King Saul, 400 years after Israel cut this covenant with the Gibeonites, 400 years later, King Saul had assumed that Israel was released from this covenant, and so he oppressed the Gibeonites. And because of his oppression of the Gibeonites, the Lord brought three years of famine into the land of Israel. David, seeking to right that curse from the, the breaking of the covenant, actually goes to the, the Gibeonites and they say, what do we do to end this? And they say, well, here's what we have to do. You have to give us seven of sons, Saul's sons as an atonement for Saul's breach of the covenant. And they gave it to him and they died, were put to death and the curse ended. All that to say, the covenants we make before the Lord are a very big deal. And we must keep those covenants even when it is an ill-advised commitment or covenant, maybe even when it was founded on deception, because breaking the covenant brings misery. We, we see this again in the New Testament. We'd already kind of mentioned this, and it, it comes up here again and again because this is how we understand covenants. But, but in the covenant of marriage, we are called to be equally yoked. If we are, if we are a Christian, we're called to marry a Christian. We're called to marry in the Lord. And yet... 
if we are deceived or if we're foolish or if we're rebellious and we decide to marry someone that is not a Christian, as a Christian, we see that God still calls us to honor our covenant. 1 Corinthians 7, 12 says this way. It says, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her, right? He should honor his covenant. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. God calls Christians to be faithful to the covenant of marriage even when it is entered under false pretense or even if it's entered into upon rebellion. We're called to honor the covenants that we make because it reflects the covenant faithfulness of God. I remember shortly after Trish and I were married, uh, we were moving from Columbia, Missouri up to Bloomer, Wisconsin, and we had a, a decent amount of stuff to transport, but it wasn't a lot. And so I didn't want to waste money on a U-Haul, okay, because I feel like that's just throwing money away, and I know how much gas they take, and I was like, I, I don't want to do that. And so I decided instead, in my wisdom, that I'm just going to buy a brand new pickup truck, right? Like that, wastes, that makes way more sense, doesn't it? And so I bought this Dodge Ram pickup truck right there, something much like that. Um, And you know what? Brand new, get this, it was only $15,000. I know, it seems amazing, doesn't it? Like, can't buy a used car for for that right now. But but it's $15,000. And so I'm like, man, I'd be a fool if I didn't buy this car, right? Um, I didn't pray about it. I didn't ask wisdom from any of the spiritual leaders in my life if I should do this. You know, I'm moving up to Bloomer, Wisconsin, and I have no job. But it seems smart to me to buy a brand new truck, right, and, and make payments on it. Well, you know, lo and behold, fast forward nine months, and what do you find out is that uh, we can't afford the monthly payments. And, but we still had to be faithful to the covenant. We still had to pay. We still had to pay that monthly due every, every month. Even though it was very difficult, we still had to be faithful to do that. Now, God, by his grace, sold the truck out from under me for cash, which was his grace for sure. But here's the thing is that we are called to be faithful to our covenants. Even if we make them uh, in, in a certain place or certain time where we have certain understandings and those understandings change. Jesus says that our yes should be yes and our no should be a no. That we're to be people of our word because we represent the faithfulness of God. And so Christian, I'm curious, where have you failed? Maybe you have failed financially, racking up lots of credit card debt. Maybe you failed relationally by saying or doing something to siblings or friends or a spouse that you shouldn't have done. Maybe you have failed positionally, failing to be the husband you ought to be or the wife you should be or the dad you should be or the mom you should be. Wherever you have failed, Your failure is not the end of the story. God is calling you to be faithful after your failure, to be faithful to pay off your debts, to be faithful to your family, to be faithful to lead your children. After you're faithful, after your failure, God calls you to be faithful. And so just to recap, we have the failure of Israel who entered into this covenant hastily and without consulting the Lord. We have the faithfulness after the failure in which they honor the covenant that they made to the Gibeonites. Finally, we see the fruitfulness of faithfulness after failure. Look at verse 22 with me. It says, Joshua summoned them and he said to them, why did you deceive us saying, we are very far from you when you dwell among us? 
Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to you, your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. In the next chapter, we find out that Gibeon is a great city. It's called, it said it's like a royal city. It's greater than Ai, and it had many, many warriors there. And yet the people of Gibeon thought that fighting against Israel was futile. They didn't join forces with the people of the land to fight against Israel because they believed, they believed that the Lord God was going to give the land to Israel. And so even in their deception, you see this glimmer of faith, a mustard seed of faith. That's why they seek this covenant of peace. Verse 25 continues, it says, And now behold, we are in your hand, whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. In other words, we surrender everything. Whatever you think is right, do it. Verse 26, So he, Joshua, did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel. And they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Do you remember why the Lord God did not want Israel to enter into a covenant with the people of the land? It's because the Lord knows that our hearts are prone to wander. It's because he knew that if they made a covenant with the people of the land, if they, if they entered into marriages with with idol worshipers, that, that his people would go after these idol worshiper idols as well, and he, that they would worship them. And yet here, because Joshua has chosen faithfulness, he seems to flip the script. And instead of Israel having to worship the idols of the land or, or being tempted to worship the idols of the land, instead of that happening, Joshua says, you're gonna serve at the altar of the Lord. You are gonna hear about the sacrifice for sin. You are going to see the atonement that is made for the people of God. You're going to be the wood, bring the wood chips for the fire. You're gonna bring the water to put the fire out. You're going to see day after day after day this atonement for sin for the people of God. We are going to bring you into the family. You're gonna become worshipers of the Lord God and indeed that's what happens. Francis Schaeffer notes this. It's a bit long, but, but it's really pretty amazing when you think about it. He says, for many years after this incident in Gibeon, there was war between the citizens of the land of Canaan, right, and between invading Israel. So years of, of battles. And it says, yet never once in the record of that long conquest do we hear of any Gibeonite defecting back to his original side. So they prospered. When the land was divided, Gibeon was one of the cities given to the line of Aaron. It became a special place where God was known. Approximately 400 years later, David put the tabernacle in that city. This meant that the altar and the priests were in Gibeon as well. 
at least one of David's mighty men, those who were closest to him in battle, was a Gibeonite. At that important and solemn moment when Solomon, David's son, ascended to the throne, Solomon made burnt offerings at Gibeon. It was there that he had vision when God spoke to him about his coming rule. Much later still, about 500 years before Christ, in the time of Zerubbabel, the genealogies of those Jews who returned from captivity under Babylonians included a list of the Gibeonites. In the days of Nehemiah, the Gibeonites were mentioned as being among the people who rebuilt the city of Jerusalem. The Gibeonites had come in among the people of God, and hundreds of years later, they were still there. Do you see the fruitfulness of the faithfulness after failure? Israel majorly messed up, but they did not make another error. They were faithful to their covenant, and as a, remem- as, as, as a fruit of that, the Gibeonites became a part of the people of God and a worshiper of the Lord. You know, earlier I quoted from 1 Corinthians 7 about the obligations of Christians to be faithful to their covenant commitments in marriage to an unbeliever. But the passage goes on to say this. It says, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? God is saying there is fruitfulness and faithfulness after failure. That through one spouse, the Lord may use it to save another. Again, there are many stories in our congregation, people who are sitting around you, of people who married someone that they know that they should not have married, and yet the Lord in his grace has produced fruit in their faithfulness after bringing their spouse to faith in Christ. There are some here who are on their second marriage or third marriage or fourth marriage. If this is you, I have good news. No matter your failures in the past, whomever you are married to right now, God calls you to be faithful to your covenant because God can make it fruitful. Christian, wherever you have failed, it is not too late to be faithful. And where you are faithful, God will make it fruitful because God can redeem broken things. Let me end with this. Uh, Recently, I saw on a streaming service, a movie called The Covenant. And it grabbed my eye because uh, I went to Covenant Seminary. Uh, We talk a lot about covenant theology in in our circles. Uh, If I had a dog, I'd probably name him Covenant. Oh, wait, I do have a dog. I don't, but, you know, covenants are like a really big deal. We have have a book out there called Covenants Made Simple. Encourage you to pick it up. It's a fantastic book. Um, But it's a great movie, and it's a movie worth watching, even though I'm gonna totally spoil it for you right now. Um, and, and to be honest with you, I don't know how vulgar it is because we have something that filters all that out, but it's a great movie. And in this movie, there is a U.S. Army Green Beret named John Kinley. This also fits well because it's, it's Veterans Day weekend. And John Kinley is in Afghanistan. And, and while they're in Afghanistan, the U.S. soldiers need translators. They need indigenous people that will translate their language into English. And so the United States makes a covenant with these these indigenous interpreters. You see, they are, by interpreting, they are risking not only their life, but the life of their family. Because if the Taliban finds out that they are doing these translations, then they will go and they will kill them and they will kill their family. And so, and so the U.S. makes this covenant. If you do these interpretations, if you interpret for us, then we will grant you asylum in the United States where you can be safe and where you can be prosperous and you can be happy. 
Anyways, several weeks later, uh, Kinley, uh, uh, he, 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 he takes on this translator, and this translator proves to be faithful. Uh, he actually diverts them from, from, being, uh, from, from an onslaught that is standing up in front of them, and he defies another translator to do it. And then later, uh, when, when, his, when, his, when his unit is attacked, and Kinley is the only one left alive, uh, Kinley is, 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 is beaten uh, within just a, an inch of, of losing his life so that they can take him and torture him. And yet this interpreter, this interpreter, Ahmed, saves him. He rescues him. And he carries him for, I don't know, maybe 100 miles through the mountains back to the U.S. military base. Well, finally he gets home. He heals up. And he is wondering if Ahmed has come to the United States, if the United States has honored their commitment. And he finds out that they haven't. And so he makes some phone calls. He tries to do whatever he can to honor this commitment to get Ahmed back to the United States. But the United States will not honor their covenant. And so Kinley, at the risk of his own life, decides to honor that commitment himself. And he says, I'm going to get the man and his family out of the position that we put him in. And so his, on his own dime, he flies over to Afghanistan, interviews Ahmed's brother, tracks down Ahmed, who is with his family on the run from the Taliban, and heroically fights off the Taliban to bring him back to the United States to honor the covenant that was made. You know, it is a great great story. And the best stories are always shadows of the gospel. But the gospel is even greater than this movie because God did not come to save covenant keepers. God came to save covenant breakers. You see, all of us have been deceived by the great deceiver, Satan. All of us have chosen to, to indulge in sin when God tells us it leads to destruction. We've all been deceived. We have all broken the covenant. But God sent the one and only covenant keeper. He sent the Lord Jesus Christ who obeyed the commands of God's covenant perfectly like no one else has done before. And at the cross, what Jesus does is he takes on the curse of covenant breaking he is torn in two. He dies. He endures the wrath of God for our breach of the covenant with God. And then he raises on the third day that we covenant breakers could be treated as covenant keepers and made a part of the family of God. You see, the good news of the gospel is that when we are unfaithful, God is always faithful. God is always faithful. And we know of his faithfulness because we see his fruitfulness. Do you know what the fruit is of God's faithfulness after our failure is? The fruit are the people sitting next to you. It is the people coming at the next service. It is the people worshiping Christ around the world at this very moment, this very day. We are the fruit of the faithfulness of God despite our failure. If you're here today and you have never trusted in Christ for your salvation. I encourage you to do so. Otherwise, you will endure the curse of breaking the covenant. But if you trust in Jesus, the only faithful one, he will endure the curse on your behalf that you can become a child 
of God. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for this magnificent story in Joshua chapter 9. But more than that, we are so thankful that when we are faithless, that when we fail, you are still faithful. And because you are so faithful, we have a king, we have a savior, we have a future. And so God, pray that we would turn all our failures over to you and that we would seek to be faithful with what you have before us this day and that we would always be looking forward to the faithful one, the promise keeper, the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen.